Last Tuesday, my philosophy professor told us democracy is already dead in the United States. But the democratic process wasn't even available to 18-year-olds until 1971. College students are unapologetically politically active on Instagram, but are we taking our politics to the polls? And is it a duty to do so, or just a right? Um, there's no such thing as democracy in America. I wish there was more empathy from people for folks, especially those of like marginalized communities. Uh, I don't think it's important for most Americans to vote. Voting is a right, but also a gift, and so I like to use it when I can. I actually personally don't feel comfortable voting. A lot of people are kind of a lot more uninformed than I would expect. Welcome to, or welcome back, to Pitt Perspectives. As always, I'm your host, Jillian. Pitt Perspectives is a student-run podcast aimed at building a sense of understanding in the UNC student body by sharing candid, anonymous student opinions on important social topics. We are excited to bring you a new semester of opinions, history, philosophy, statistics, and commentary. Whether this is your first episode or you've been with us since last fall, we hope you take the next hour of your time to reflect on your place within campus culture here in Chapel Hill and within American democracy, as we challenge you to question how you engage with today's topic, voting. start with a piece of forgotten North Carolina history, followed by a survey of the reasons why UNC students do and do not vote, ending with a philosophy of what considerations we take with us into the voting booth. On Tuesday, November 8th, North Carolinians will head to the polls to vote in the midterms. An open seat in the Senate, New House districts and two open spots on the bench of the North Carolina Supreme Court make this election season quite consequential for state and local politics. But in the years since 2016, the electorate is feeling tired, and young people now entering their voting years bear the burden of their own futures for the first time. For our generation, political responsibility feels like it started in 2017 when Instagram stories were launched. And we've been dealt quite a hand since then. Um, how do you participate in American democracy? Post those infographics on your Instagram. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> um, vote. Uh, pay attention to politics and attend protests. Now that polls are open for most UNC students, we have to decide for ourselves, is the right to vote a right to vote or is it our civic duty? So I do indeed vote uh, every single time as soon as I can um, because I think it's really important to participate when I do have the right. I come from a family of immigrants, um, so my mom didn't have the right to vote for a long time until she got her uh, residency. And so I think voting is a right but also a gift, and so I like to use it when I can. You know, I think voting is a both. It's a right and a duty. 
we have this right to vote and not everyone does but it's also a duty because whether you like it or not politics are going to do your ass so I definitely take voting as a responsibility that I think we all should have as citizens uh, of the U.S. and I think it's important uh, uh, that everybody participates because uh, every vote matters and uh, we live in a society right now that uh, there's a lot of uh, polarization and I think it uh, by coming together talking about the issues uh, uh, and talking across differences uh, we can bring people uh, you know, to a better understanding of the importance of, of, of our civic responsibilities and protecting uh, our democracy. I vote. Um, I think it's a civic duty to because um, you put people in office who uphold certain rights, like pro-choice people. Um, yeah, I've never voted before, but I think it's an important responsibility for all citizens to like voice their opinion. Really uh, looking forward to that liberal wave in Chapel Hill. So I am registered, and to this cycle will be my first. So I plan to do it. Yes, I vote. I think it's like important, and it's my right as a citizen. So um, yeah, why not? right to vote comes from the guarantee clause of the Constitution. The United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a republican form of government and shall protect each of them against invasion and on application of the legislature or of the executive against domestic violence. A republican government, of course, is not one that is ideologically conservative, but is a government that James Madison described as one which derives all its powers directly or indirectly from the great body of the people. And in America, the people express this power when they vote. A lot has been said about the right to vote. The Supreme Court has said that the right to vote is a fundamental political right because it is preservative of all rights. And to the extent that a citizen's right to vote is debased, he is that much less a citizen. The right to vote, though, has been debased for large demographic groups in this country since its inception. Black voters entered booths for a short time during the Reconstruction era after the Civil War, but the turn of the 20th century saw a resurgence of mass acts of violence and political efforts to disenfranchise black voters, as Southern whites grew uncomfortable with the changing electorate. For many white Americans, this was a blip. The Voting Rights Act of 1965 then solved racism, and we all got the right to vote and lived happily ever after. And if we're complaining, we better be voting about it too. But what's lost on many white Americans is both the recency and severity of the fight for the right to vote. Since elementary school, we've learned about the civil rights movement, we've watched the movie Selma, we've read about the Little Rock Nine, and other great triumphs for black Americans in the push for equality. But there are millions of important days and moments in history that have been pushed aside and hidden in the archives. And among these forgotten histories is the only successful coup d'etat to ever take place on American soil, in Wilmington, North Carolina, in 1898. A coup by a white supremacist group, with the sole aim of removing black Americans from the political process. Additionally, um, throughout American history and throughout world history, a lot of people have sacrificed a lot to gain the right to vote. People have even sacrificed their lives. People have fought a lot for this right. Um, and so I think it's really a privilege that a lot of times as Americans we take for granted, but we have to remember that not everyone in the world has this privilege and not everyone throughout American history has had this privilege. Um, so it's really important that we use it and have a voice for our future.
Late 1890s Wilmington was home to a majority black population and a successful one. There were black councilmen, police officers, doctors, lawyers, and educators reaping the benefits of reconstruction. Wilmington was also home to the Daily Record, a black-owned newspaper that employed Alexander Manley as the chief editor. Manley wrote an article responding to a speech given by a Georgia socialite, Rebecca Felton, that called for the lynching of black men as a method to protect white women. Manley's response quickly caught the attention of the town's white population, as he noted that it was often white men who raped black women and that this was threatening the safety of the town. Wilmington's white supremacists mobilized to produce the White Declaration of Independence, and this was a movement that had been brewing for a while, but Manley's article, for some reason, got everyone going. They declared that we, the undersigned citizens, do hereby declare that we will no longer be ruled and will never again be ruled by men of African origin. The next day, a group of 2,000 armed men formed a militia and burned the daily record to the ground. Black and white political allies were forcibly evicted from office and marched to the train station at gunpoint, followed by thousands of other black residents. The coup is still the most successful and longest lasting in American history. 126,000 black men were registered to vote in North Carolina in 1896, and in 1902, only 6,100 remained eligible. The White Declaration of Independence's wish held strong for 74 years, as no black citizen held office in Wilmington again until 1972. The successful efforts of the coup and newly instated white supremacist government were aimed at restricting voting access for black Wilmington residents, as they were beaten on the way to the polls, threatened with murder if they attempted to register, and many others killed as the event has taken the name of the Wilmington Massacre. The Wilmington Massacre of 1898 is now 124 years behind us, but its impact lives in contemporary politics. Racial minorities today bear a disproportionate burden of voter ID laws that significantly reduce diversity in voter turnout. Laws proposed to restrict voting on Sundays will disproportionately affect voters of color. And polling places with fewer white voters have more slowdowns. And yet, like the reluctance to recognize and reflect on the Wilmington Massacre and other forgotten histories in our country, today's politicians and most Americans seem unalarmed by new modes of explicit voter suppression. While of course voting has different individual significance, what does it mean when someone abstains from this fundamental action in American democracy? When you place voting abstinence in the context of cities like Wilmington or Selma or Montgomery— what does that say about the lost lives and endless battles fought for that right to even become a right? Has politics in this country outgrown the use of our voting system? Is voting obsolete? As we move forward, place Wilmington in the back of your mind, in the same way it sits behind the Voting Rights Act and the 15th, 19th, and 26th Amendments, and decide whether we must consider this history when we decide if we ought to vote. Especially for us young people, our right to vote was the most recently granted only in 1971, with the passage of the 26th Amendment. This lowered the voting age to 18 from 21, and the movement began in the 60s when 18-year-old men were drafted to fight in Vietnam but didn't even have a say in who ran the country. The 26th Amendment also was not an easy win. There were serious concerns that young people's minds were too malleable and too subject to emotional appeals of demagogues. While these concerns have now waned, they've been replaced with new ones, particularly the declining voting rates of young Americans. 
Yet another example of a recently won fight that's already becoming a loss. A 2022 Washington Post-ABC News joint poll found that only 49% of Americans ages 18 to 29 are absolutely certain to be voting in the midterms this season. And an NPR poll concluded this age group to be least likely to vote. The UNC student body gave us a much different picture of the voting and political activism landscape of America's young people today. Okay, I'm going to vote for the first time um, this election, and I'll especially be voting in my hometown rather than Chapel Hill because my hometown's pretty conservative, and I'm not, so I feel like my vote is weighted a little bit more there. Um, I think voting is really important. It can be frustrating right now with, uh, I think, how politics are going and how voting's becoming a little bit corrupt, but I think that uh, it's still important to vote because that's our <laughs> democratic duty. <laughs> I vote. I think voting is important. And when I was 18, I ran for mayor in my hometown. That's how I participated in American democracy. All right. So I think voting is really important because uh, the elections in North Carolina are so close with like Sherry Beasley's last election being decided by 400 votes that if students actually start voting and start advocating as a group for issues that we care about, we can start to get change in the issues we care about. You know, our interests are really aligned when it comes to things like climate change and a lot of things that are affecting the future of our country that old people aren't worried about. So we need to work together to actually develop a sense of youth empowerment in the work that we're doing. I absolutely think voting is one of the most important things you can do as an American or as a citizen and so I obviously absolutely vote in every election that I am eligible to. Um, I do vote. I'm 18 so I've only voted in one election so far but I am planning on voting in the upcoming election. Well we're at a large top public university and so this might be what you expect. Educated young people who engage with current events on a regular basis have easy access to voting and easy access to resources about voting and candidates and positions and so on. But if abstinence from voting is a political stance, I was curious if a place like UNC would actually be the ideal environment for abstinence and not only voting. Honestly, I think, like, I vote. Um, sometimes I think, unfortunately, I mean, like, poll after poll after poll shows that, like, public opinion has, like, ultimately, like, no sway over policymaking. So, like, Voting does seem a little, mm, I don't know, useless, especially when you like vote for quote unquote like representation in like forms of Congress that like don't end up doing anything. But also like voting, like not everyone can vote. Um, and I mean that isn't like even like U.S. citizens like have a hard time accessing voting because of like various forms of like voter suppression, and, like access to like voting, like. I don't know, like, like, polls and also, like, I don't know, having the day off. Anyway, there's just, like, so much shit. So, like, ultimately, like, whatever. Also, like, um, American democracy is an oxymoron. Um, there's no such thing as democracy in America. Um, I feel like we live in a corporatocracy or um, what else? Technocracy. Um, there are things that are a little bit out of my control when it comes to things. So, like... Do I wish that we may have lived in, like, Athens, Greece, or whatever, and, like, had, like, this, like, actual form of democracy? Sure. 
uh, doesn't exist. So I am not registered to vote, and the reason why is because not even the reasons why I've listed before. Like not even because I think it's, I don't think it's useless. I think everybody will contribute, but also because um, I am a trans person and I am currently in the process of changing my name. But at the same time, I want to be able to um, vote with my actual name and like have like my actual name in the register. And it's like it's a it's a hard process to do that. It's like a hard process to like go through, um, especially if you're alone without any like support or help. It's financially like exhausting and so like it just this is like why some people are at risk of not being able to vote for somebody that they actually like because of their like situations in life because of like of my own situation where I just don't want to put my the dead name that I have on like a ballot and I don't want I don't want to do that I don't want to be known as that person who voted for that president or something like that you know um for some people it's literally just there's no access to voting they just can't vote at all um so there's that like a first year so this is like my first year voting but to be honest I really don't think voting is like the whole solution into changing our whole system and like all the injustice that's in our that's relevant in our system but like I said in our current system we really need more radical change and voting I don't think does that but in our current system we there's really not much that can be done so we just have to work with what we got so I do think voting does have its benefits, but ultimately if we do want radical change, honestly, I don't think voting is that, because I think the people should have more power in creating the systems that we have. I am almost 20 years old and I've never voted. I know it's important and I'm planning to, I want to vote. I went with my dad a few years ago for his first time voting. He immigrated here. Um, when I was born and became a citizen a few years ago. I went with him for his first time. It was like a really heart-touching moment. It was a really beautiful moment. Um, and I understand how hard people work for the right to vote. And so, yes, I will participate. Um, I also understand how, like, the lifestyle, the college lifestyle, or even just, like, life in general, I understand the barriers. Or no, I don't understand but I am I am empathetic and I and I am in some ways impacted by the barriers of voting where the dates are not very accessible all of the time and how work and school and other conflicts get in the way um, so that has also contributed to my so far inability to vote um, however I am also sympathetic to the view of people usually people that stand on the fringes of like our political rights so like our people of color our queer people um our people that have usually been left out of the political process and have been demonized by the political process not trusting in the that process that has hurt them for so many generations i've deeply understand that and I understand the disillusion with the system and not wanting to participate in any form um, and fully reject it. So I feel a little conflicted when people like make it out to be this issue that either you like like vote and care about the world or you're evil if you don't and that it is like indicative of like apathy because it can be indicative of like love and anger for yourself and not wanting to like compromise your own values um yeah and feed into the system so those are my views i'm i personally will vote but i understand 
those that don't, truthfully. Clearly, voting abstinence comes in a wide array of packaging, but it's questionable whether all forms of voting avoidance are really acts of resistance deep down, or if an unchecked ballot can be the same political choice as a marked one. In other words, the significance of the decision not to vote seems to rest on whether we view voting as a duty. On one hand, if voting is a duty, if I don't vote, I'm taking an action against something I'm supposed to do. On the other hand, if I just have the right to vote, I'm declining an invitation. Or as some students voiced here, maybe the invitation wasn't properly extended to me in the first place. One step to take towards unpacking this decision is to understand the reasons why young people might feel apathetic or might not vote. And not because understanding these reasons is the first step towards fixing them, but because it's curious whether the decision not to vote is more or less of a decision to vote. So you probably could have guessed that the first and not uncommon frustration that students both expressed and responded to was that there's simply no good choice to be made. So it's, it's kind of gotten to a point where I'm rather ambivalent about both of the political parties. So I still don't know who I'm voting for or if I'm voting at all in November. Uh, educating myself is hard because honestly, at the end of the day, like all the candidates are nobody ideal. It's like the lesser of two evils. So I don't know if I do much educating. I'm just like, mm, who do I like better? Uh, I don't really pay attention to local politics. Definitely just like president. Um, and I don't know. I think it's so hard because recently like it doesn't even matter what issues are important. Like honestly this last election I just chose the one who wasn't blatantly racist. So like, I feel like the bigger issues don't even, that would come up if they were better people, but because I was just picking who was the better person in general, I didn't even care about the issues. Not from, uh, I'm from Tennessee, I'm not from uh, North Carolina. Uh, I think a lot of the reasons, um, I actually personally don't feel comfortable voting, um, simply because I feel that a lot of it's skewed. I mean, I hate to make a choice between parties and uh, when my views don't align with both. I'm a, uh, I'm a Roman Catholic. I strongly believe in strong social welfare, but I also believe in, you know, social um, conservatism. And so if I had to vote for one party that's socially conservative when it doesn't, when it doesn't, when it counts for them and they are not willing to pay out the money to create a good, a better, a better society, I'm not going to vote for them. One party that doesn't respect my social views, I'm not going to vote for them either. I'm tired of picking between two options when I don't agree with either. Choosing between the lesser of two evils is probably not what the framers of the Constitution were picturing 200 years ago. But our primary system, combined with intense polarization, ignorance, false information, and vicious and expensive campaign cycles, have certainly produced exciting elections with little nuance to them. For voters that want to take their values to the voting booth, it can be hard to feel like their only choices are between candidates who diverge from their morals, religion, identity, and so on. Or, for some voters, their identity is exactly what draws them to the political process. Voting is a way to conduct harm reduction. So, you know, it's sort of difficult because in many ways you have to let go of... of, of of your identity and all the things that you want. You know, there's so many things that we believe and it's important, they're important to us and they're close to who we are and that's that's a good thing because it, um, 
it, it shows that we care about the world around us, but when we vote, we, we need to participate in the democratic process and vote because as a teacher, I can think of programs like um, free meals in schools, for example, that were offered during COVID or dental you know visits that we did during COVID, things of that nature that have a tangible impact in people's lives. So while I don't think we... While we need to hold feet to the fire in terms of how our society operates, um, choosing the worst of two evils is choosing a greater good for real people who are going to be impacted um, in their day-to-day life. Yes, I do vote um, because I feel like it's important to, um, like as a gay man, to have like marginalized voices heard um, and being represented in government. Regardless of if you like who's running, one of them will be in a position of power after the votes are counted. And when that person later enacts policy, votes for legislation, and lobbies for their constituents, and so on, those who didn't participate are often the first to voice dissatisfaction. Students here reported annoyance at this kind of ignorant complaint, but to be fair, if someone doesn't like either side, they're probably still going to be upset even if they reluctantly vote. I do think voting is important and that everyone's vote matters and if you don't vote then like the wrong people get voted for and then it's a destruction for everyone else. Um, I hope people vote more uh, especially when it kind of hits peeve of mine if they are outspoken about a certain issue and end up not voting. So. Um, all those slander ads that you're seeing on YouTube about Sherry Beasley you should not listen to and you should make a vote <laughs> um i think everybody's vote is important a lot of people think their vote won't count or like make a difference but in all honesty if you have the right to vote you should get out there and vote it's part of our duty as a united states citizen i have one more thing too if you don't vote don't complain about politics there. but what about when voters can stomach one of the candidates we still have the age-old argument that their vote doesn't matter anyway. For college students especially, absentee mail-in ballots and ease of changing registration has turned voting into a strategic game of placing bets where they have the most potential to enact change. Well, I'm registered in my hometown because I just feel like I'd have more effect there, but I'm pretty sure my hometown is more blue than it is um, red. Um, I live in Fayetteville, okay. so yeah. Yeah, so it's like it's like more so blue, um, but there's also those pockets of red where I'm like, ah! Yeah, so um, I think it's definitely, I don't think it's as blue as um, Chapel Hill, uh, but in terms of like voting, like my effect in voting, um, I think I'd have a better, you know, yeah, yeah. Um... A lot of people are not going to be happy with me, but I'm not voting again. Um, I voted last time, and you know what I felt? Stupid. It was for nothing, and I knew it was for nothing, and I still did it. I mean, the important part is voting local, I think, and like I did that, and that I was, I guess, happy that I did, but like all the little like pop-up tables they're like are you registered to vote i'm like no and i keep walking they're like do you want no i don't i literally don't um it's silly like as a trans person as a black person like it's 
it's like jokes like what is the point of me doing that just like I feel like people need to realize <laughs> people need to realize that like they're the same it's a lot of the same they'll do the same shit and describe it in different ways and that's just what's gonna happen well unlike some people I do actually vote and people say that like <clears throat> oh like there's so many people and there's so many like interest groups that you voting doesn't really make a difference in the large scheme of things but I think that's the wrong attitude to have because I feel like enough votes and enough votes like together we are strong you know what I mean like a big enough portion of people voting one way will have an effect on our society because we are democratic I know so even if our votes have no effect casting our votes shows what how we feel about the world like even if they pass like a law that like say they passed a law that like legalizes um, say they have a vote on whether or not we should legalize heroin or something and they decide to do it anyway even though the majority of people voted no sure like that voting didn't have an effect on the law that got passed but it did show that we as a society reject that and it does give your piece of opinion your you know it does give your opinion and i feel like voting is important it's the backbone of like any democracy i, I would encourage anyone who can to vote because it is a privilege that's denied to many people in the world and especially if you're colored or a woman it's a privilege that we only got relatively recently and voting is part of your american duty i feel you know to take an active stand in your society and be aware and to share your voice and that's how i participate in american democracy yeah i vote i think it's really important that people do vote um, especially because you know while it's easy to kind of like fall into that notion that oh, it's just one vote, it doesn't really count. But, like, especially in counties, like, within the within North Carolina that are, like, swing counties, that could go between Democrat and Republican, like, that one vote can make a significant change. Um, and especially with being in Chapel Hill, I think it's important to kind of weigh out your options. Like, if you are a North Carolina resident, maybe your vote would be more useful in your home county rather than in Chapel Hill, given the fact that this is a more uh, blue-leaning county. I don't know. I feel like I'm, I'm from California, so I live in a very liberal state. So I feel like my voice there doesn't matter as much as it would in somewhere more split. But I would still vote anyway because it's important to do. Worries about voting abstinence, and especially among our generation, are corroborated by poll results published in April of this year by Harvard's Kennedy School Institute of Politics. So they're specifically looking at change from 2018 to 2022 and the percentage of 18 to 29 year olds agreeing that political involvement rarely has any tangible results rose from 22% to 36% agreement. In those four years, young people witnessed COVID take millions of lives, the rapid popularization of the Black Lives Matter movement, followed by more racially motivated violence, police brutality, and gun violence, the election of Biden and Harris, the January 6th insurrection, the Mississippi v. Dobbs ruling, and whatever else has been going on in our hometowns and states. It would be insufficient and inaccurate to say that the politics have had a quiet, inconsequential few years. So the growing feelings of political powerlessness are questionable, but perhaps our generation doesn't only feel inadequately represented, but inadequately situated in our beloved Republican government. Another poll from the Kennedy School found that 56% of young people now agree with the statement 
that politics today are no longer able to meet the challenges our country is facing, increasing from 45% in 2018. And this leaves us in a bit of a perplexing state. So first, these two polls do complement each other quite well. It makes sense that a sense of inadequacy of politics itself would be correlated to feelings of powerlessness within that political system. But then the question becomes, what do we do about it? If you're a longtime listener of Pit Perspectives, you know this question quite well. But before I can offer some potential remedies, it perhaps seems important to carve out a group of people who seem to be outside of these frustrations. These being people who aren't dissatisfied with the political system, nor do they feel misrepresented. But they don't vote. Not because their vote doesn't matter, but more that the outcome won't affect them either way. Um, I think voting is incredibly important because it is something that a lot of people, their lives and their well-being are on the line with it. And so therefore, I participate in American democracy by advocating for voting and going to marches and stuff in which you are helping to promote the well-being of others. And for people who don't think it's important to vote, I often think that that is a sign of privilege in which your, your rights aren't on the line. Uh, abstaining from voting is disgusting and anyone that does it forfeits their right to have any political opinion ever and any complaints from those people scratch nails into my ears and I hate those people. It's hard to picture an election where the outcome truly will have no effect on a member of the electorate. But if you're just naive to what the elected officials are responsible for, that's a different story. At the local level, for example, politicians' duties can be to regulate anything from the speed limit to the minimum wage to the hours of the school day to sales tax. And funnily enough, college students seem to be most plausibly unaffected. You have a group of 18 to 22-year-olds who, to be overly, overly general, either don't work or don't solely work for their living expenses, don't attend a K-12 school, don't own property like a house, don't make use of welfare programs, probably have health care coverage from their parents, and don't own a business, and so on. But of course, our elected officials also deal with a lot of policymaking that does affect us. The most voiced issue at UNC seeming to be female reproductive rights. The issues that are most important for me, definitely like women's rights and like racial justice, like um, reduction of inequality, stuff like that. I think social issues are a lot more important to me than like financial and like economic issues, but I, I want to like learn more about that because I know they kind of go hand in hand. Issues are important, like voter ID. Um, I'm aware that like I don't directly affect this because I'm like upper middle class, so I do have that privilege, but also like women's rights. Um, abortion, reproductive health care. Um, the issues that are most important for me right now, abortion's a big thing. Um, also, just reproductive health uh, because that is something that's very uh, impactful. Um, I do vote. Um, voting is important. I think when it comes to like specific people in power, um, like for example, uh, abortion, like Governor Cooper, Josh Stein, those are all elected offices that have said that they're not going to enforce abortion bans. Um, and you know, keeping those people in power is really, really important.
on Tuesday, assuming all goes well. North Carolina's open Senate seat will be handed to Ted Budd or to Sherry Beasley, which you're probably aware of if you've left your dorm and taken a walk across campus, or opened YouTube to be greeted by a warning that Sherry Beasley wants criminals to roam our streets or that Ted Budd wants to ban all abortions. UNC student groups like the Feminist Majority, for example, have been working night and day to register students to vote, and then to get them to vote for Beasley. So now what I want to start thinking about is whether or not voting abstinence is a successful act of resistance. And I think the best way to do that is by using this election, especially for those of you that haven't yet voted. And I always love to start with questions that seem obvious and then make them more complicated while answering them. So why are students here so tightly tied up in this race? Most obviously, well, and despite a weird lack of national attention, it's going to be a close one. And North Carolina hasn't seen a Democrat elected to the Senate in more than 10 years. But second, it's worth taking a look at Bud's and Beasley's platforms. To quote directly from the issues section on his website, Ted Budd is committed to creating jobs and stopping socialism, securing the border, standing with law enforcement, defending the Second Amendment, protecting the sanctity of life, and cutting taxes, waste, and red tape. Sherry Beasley's platform follows the same categorical pattern, but she's committed to creating jobs and growing economic opportunity for all of North Carolina, fixing our immigration system, keeping North Carolina communities safe, standing up for women's rights, and a few more specifics like improving housing affordability and supporting small towns, rural areas, and agriculture. Ignoring whatever any of that means and whether any of it will happen, it's at least clear that Bud and Beasley have different visions for North Carolina's future. And some of what they want to do, like to protect women's rights or the sanctity of life, if you were on the quad last week, is clearly important to college students. But Uh, For example, to throw myself under the bus, for me as an out-of-state student with health insurance specifically serving Maryland, Virginia, and D.C., something like Beasley's commitment to quality and affordable healthcare access to all North Carolinians is unlikely to affect my next doctor's visit. On the same vein, Bud's commitment to continue the fight for Kate's Law, which increases criminal penalties for convicted and deported individuals who illegally re-enter the U.S., also seems unlikely to personally affect my day-to-day existence as a college student in Chapel Hill. And you're probably thinking that it's pretty obvious that every voter is not affected by every single policy proposed by a candidate. So, right, like, we vote for a platform. We vote for a party. We're not voting for every single thing. But I think that this is something that we take for granted and that we could dive into a little bit deeper. The way our government was designed, when we cast a vote, we're picking someone for a public office who's going to do things not only for us, but for our neighbors, our coworkers, our friends, other people in our communities. And so I wonder if there was some fundamental assumption that when we vote, we are thinking about those other people and not just about ourselves. There are a few ways to approach this question. One of them is looking at the behaviors and thoughts behind people who vote today. For example, this type of consideration for the way your actions affect other people can be broadly measured as social empathy. And social empathy has been found to highly correlate to increased rates of civic engagement, which one might expect. 
But we don't need high social empathy to vote. I mean, no one is asking you at the polls if you've considered how your ballot will affect your community. Or I I hope they're not. So it's worth asking if this was assumed. And in my search to answer this question about what assumptions were made about American voters, I came across a 600-page thesis written on the Federalist Papers' account of human nature. And human nature seemed like a cool angle to approach this from. Thinking about the way that our government interacts with our behavior. And from the very, very tip of the iceberg, I can recount a minute portion of the argument provided in this thesis, which begins with an assertion that Republican government is built with an understanding of fundamental human nature in mind and an adherence to this nature rather than a deviation from it. So the goal of the Founding Fathers was to attempt to place government upon the only philosophy which can ever support it, the real constitution of human nature, not upon any wild visions of its perfectibility. So it's true that the Founding Fathers, when they were crafting our government, were thinking about the way humans behave and the way they think and how these behaviors and thoughts will interact with our political actions. And in an attempt to understand why this is actually a novel idea and not just something that happens in every government, I'm going to quote Mao Zedong and Pope John Paul II, both speaking about socialism and human nature. Mao himself said that human knowledge and the capability to transform nature have no limit. And remember that the Founding Fathers instead said that they were building a government adhering to the constitution of human nature and not any wild visions of its perfectibility, whereas Mao is looking to the future of that exact perfectibility. In a response to this assumption that we have this capacity to transform ourselves, to quote Pope John Paul II, the fundamental error of socialism is anthropological in nature. Socialism considers the individual person simply as an element, a molecule within the social organism, so that the good of the individual is completely subordinated to the functioning of the socioeconomic mechanism. I also just want to say that quoting Pope John Paul II has no relation to Catholicism. It was just an interesting quote. So if socialist and communist regimes strive for perfect human nature and the taming of our individuality, what does a Republican government strive for? Well, the author of that thesis says, liberty is the central principle of republicanism. Of the various governing principles of political regimes throughout history, the Founding Fathers understood liberty in the form of natural rights to be in the greatest conformity with human nature. Liberty is more in conformity with mankind's natural self-love than is fraternity or equality of outcome. The tendency toward self-love is a tendency toward self interest. So we conflated Republican government with liberty, and then liberty with self-love, and then self-love with self-interest. And things like self-interest are of relevant concern when trying to figure out whether we ought to vote and how we ought to vote. Another view of this is from James Buchanan, an American economist and Nobel Prize winner, that instead says we might stray from this tendency toward self-interest when we participate in politics. 
He says political action, regardless of how decisions are made, involves choices that are made for and coercively imposed on all members of the relevant political community. Anyone who is a participant is almost by necessity required to classify his or her own interests in juxtaposition against the imagined interests of others in the polity. So to tie it all back together, if I were to take myself to the polls in North Carolina on Tuesday and vote, I'm supposed to think about how Sherry Beasley's healthcare plans will affect other people, not necessarily just myself. That is, if I'm following Buchanan's mode of thinking about political action. I'm supposed to juxtapose my own interests to the way I imagine these interests in other people's minds. So even though Sherry Beasley's insurance and healthcare policy options will not affect me, I should think about and question how they might affect the people I live with and the people I hang out with. But given our understanding of the way the Founding Fathers thought about liberty and human nature, it doesn't necessarily seem like I need to think about it that way. I could make a wholly self-interested vote. And now it's time to ask whether not voting would also be in my self-interest. And I'm not talking about the single mother who doesn't have enough time on election day to make it to the polls, or someone with an English language barrier who can't access information, but I'm talking about a college student with ample civic literacy and resources and information who simply chooses not to. And the reason this may be an act of self-interest is that you are withholding a sword from a fight. I don't know, I think it's, I think it's not cool to abstain from voting. I think it's definitely a duty. I think that even if you're not gonna be affected by policies that are implemented by, um, the people that you're voting for, you still need to vote. Like when people were like, oh, like I don't really care if Trump or Biden wins. Like that's a lot of privilege that they have to say that. Um, I definitely think it's a duty. Just even if you're not affected, like a lot of people are affected by who's in office. Yeah, the one thing I wanted to express like opinion about voting is just, it's just like I, I desire, I wish there was more empathy from people for folks, especially those of like marginalized communities who either like either like explicitly don't have access to voting or like do not want to vote because they do not see the system as having any interest in their well-being. So I get I get very frustrated when those people from those population groups get denigrated because of their because of their choices. Um, And I feel like that denigration is without any appreciation for like the lived realities of those people. And that's yeah, that's all. And it could be a fight that your neighbors, friends, and co-workers might be losing. But self-interest also plays a part in the decisions made by those who are voting. For example, NPR describes Green Party candidate Matthew Ho and Libertarian Shannon Bray as possible spoilers in a potentially tight race for the North Carolina Senate seat, since they draw voters away from one of the frontrunners. Voting for the Green Party might be selfish when you're essentially using your vote to make a statement rather than actually elect someone, but what if the Green Party voter only cares about getting a true living wage established in North Carolina, which is Ho's top priority? Is that a self-interested act? And if it is, is that detrimental to our democracy? To put it more broadly, am I supposed to vote for myself or the people around me? These interests might be the same, but they also might not be. And our political culture doesn't seem to criminalize picking the former over the latter. 
And what about voting not explicitly in the name of self-interest, but maybe in no interest? I vote because I think it's important to have a say in what is going on in the government, and I like to at least have the illusion that I have a say in what's going on. Uh, I don't think it's important for most Americans to vote because the average American does not choose to educate themselves on politics, and I don't think that they should just be forced to vote when they don't want to actually educate themselves. And I think an uneducated uh, constituency and populace voting is a horrible idea. And I participate in American democracy by voting, uh, by signing up for the selective service uh, and trying to educate myself and talking to things like this. So is it harmful for uninformed voters to take to the ballot? Experimental results in political science have confirmed that uninformed American voters have a distorted ability to translate their preferences into partisan preferences and vote choices. So in other words, people might know what they want, but don't know who to vote for to get what they want. Further, that uninformed subjects systematically shift toward the Democratic Party and away from the Republican Party as they become informed about the party's positions. The direction of the shift in this finding is not as important or relevant here than the existence of that shift. Identifying that there are members of the electorate who are voting for reasons other than policy or ideological interest, and rather because of familiarity, social pressure, and so on. There are voters in the electorate who are, I guess you could say, not voting for the right party or not voting for the party that's really aligned with their interests. And one could argue that these are self-interested votes because they aren't made in good faith. And this is significant because misinformation is not unheard of in our country. I'm part of UNC Young Democrats, and so we do like voter registration and stuff like that. And what I've noticed is a lot of people are kind of a lot more uninformed than I would expect. Uh, I think educated voting is incredibly important because that is the one way that we can contribute to, uh, as individuals, how our country is run. And sure, one individual vote may not sway the line that much, but a, a million individual votes will. Um, I work in voter education, so I have to, and I promote educating yourself on voter, uh, educating yourself on ballot candidates and voting down ballot, because um, every position counts. Um, even though I don't really believe in democracy anymore, I still think voter education is important, and participating in jury duty and voting is like some of the rights that you have to maximize. Only 34% of Americans can name the three branches of federal government, which Ilya Somin, law professor and author, uses as evidence in his book, Democracy and Political Ignorance. Not to point out that Americans are dumb, but that anyone who follows politics even moderately closely is likely to know them. Somin takes care to point out the difference between ignorance, intelligence, and apathy, all of which sometimes come together to paint the electorate as just uneducated. Samin notes that no matter how smart we are, all of us are ignorant about the vast majority of the information out there. Given our limited time and energy, we have to pick and choose what we learn. It is rational for us to be ignorant about many, many subjects and instead devote our efforts to seeking out knowledge that interests us or might make a difference in our lives. So, for example, if we think our votes 
don't make a difference in an upcoming election, which is pretty accurate for a presidential election at least, where we have a 1 in 60 million chance of being a decisive voter, it's hard to justify putting in the time and effort to become educated on policy platforms. And most voters just fall victim to cues put out by parties, or just vote for the same party all the time. You can also be ignorant on a subject and not be apathetic, which I think is an important point to bring up, and Samin uses the example of being ignorant about the relevant science of the quest for a cure for cancer, but not being apathetic to that search. But of course, when voter ignorance becomes widespread, that is when it becomes a problem. Because someone needs to be doing the research, in fact, the U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services website literally lists stay informed of the issues affecting your community and participate in the democratic process as responsibilities of American citizens. Thinking back to earlier when we questioned if voting is a right or a duty, it's kind of sounding like a duty. But on the same website, it also says we are responsible, as American citizens, for respecting the rights, beliefs, and opinions of others. So who's really being held accountable in this country for the things on this website? Really, you are held accountable for your civic actions and duties by no one other than yourself. Think about the privacy measures in place at poll booths in this country and also the weird taboo around asking someone who they voted for. When I was younger, I thought it was illegal to share. And yet we sport our I voted stickers with greater pride than a jersey. So whether or not you vote and who you vote for are up to you. And if you vote, how you make that decision is equally up to you. But election day is Tuesday, November 8th. So your only restraint is that you do have to figure it out by then. Whether you voted early, mailed in a ballot to your home state, have yet to register to vote, or are stuck between candidates, it's important to think about how your political decisions are decisions. They affect you, they affect the people around you, and they can affect people you've never thought about. And it's up to you to decide whose interests fill your ticket. Ask yourself why you vote or why you don't. How do you engage with democracy? How do you engage with others in our democracy? What do you value looking ahead to the future of this country? And as always, how can you use your perspective for good? Thanks for listening to this episode of Pit Perspectives. I'd like to thank Jesse Ainsley for custom music for today's episode. For full credits and sources, check the description below. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Pit Perspectives UNC for information about recording dates and times, future episodes, and any and all updates. Thanks again, and we will see you in the pit.